From Pasch to Samartan's Conversion, Part 4 Jesus and Dhamma Miraculous Conversion of an Obstinate Jew Although Adama did not appear very distant, still Jesus and the disciples had to journey some hours up a river before reaching a crossing place. There was no ferryman, but only a raft of beams, something like a gridiron, which lay on the shore for the accommodation of travelers. Toward noon, the little troop reached Adama, which was hemmed in on all sides by water. On the eastern side of the city lay Lake Merom. The city was surrounded by a stream, which was at five different points crossed by bridges. At the bathing gardens, the stream again united with the lake. The steep shores of the low lake were covered with thick reeds and undergrowth, and its waters were muddy, except in the middle, where those of the Jordan flowed. The country around was infested by wild beasts. As Jesus, with the disciples, approached the bathing garden near the city, several distinguished men of the place came forward to meet him, they had been awaiting his coming in the garden. They conducted him into the city, into a large open square, in the center of which stood the governor's palace. It had a spacious forecourt, on both sides of which, and in the rear, ran rows of low buildings. The court was cut off from the street by a railing of shining metal made into various colored plates. Here they washed the feet both of Jesus and the disciples, brushed and shook their mantles, and presented them with a luncheon of small fruits and herbs. It was an old custom of the people of Adama to conduct all that visited their city to this castle, where they interrogated them. If they were pleased with them, they treated them hospitably, in the hope of attracting blessings upon themselves. But if they were not favorably impressed by their guests, they did not hesitate to cast them into prison. Adama, with about twenty little districts, belonged to a province under the jurisdiction of one of the Herods. The inhabitants of the city were Samaritan Jews who, in consequence of their schism, had embraced sundry perverse notions. Still, there was no idolatry practiced among them, and heathens living here had to carry on their idol worship in secret. After that, Jesus was conducted by the men that had received him outside the city to the synagogue, a building of three stories. There he found a great part of the Jews assembled, the women in the background. First they prayed and chanted canticles to God, that to his honor they might understand all that Jesus was about to say to them. Then Jesus began his discourse. He spoke of the divine promises, of their mutual dependence and their realization, and of grace which, he said, was never allowed to go to waste. If he to whom, on account of the merit of his ancestors, some grace was given, would not receive it, it was passed on to the next most deserving. He told them also of a good action performed by their ancestors in this city so long before that it was to them almost unknown, but the happy results of which they were still experiencing. Their forefathers had once harbored some strangers and exiles. Jesus and the disciples put up at a large inn near the gate by which they had entered the city. In the neighborhood of the bathing garden outside, though more to the south, was a place for teaching. It consisted of a green hill in the center of a large, open space in which were trees planted in rows five deep, whose dense shade afforded protection from the sun. On the hill, and overshadowed by a tree, was a teacher's chair, beautifully hewn out of stone. It was a very delightful place, and was known as the Place of Grace. B.
because the people believed that here a great favor had once upon a time been accorded them. To the north of the city was another place, of which there was a popular saying expressive of some great calamity that had come upon them. The disciples went into the houses throughout the city, inviting the people to the place of grace, where Jesus was about to deliver a great discourse. On the evening before, a banquet was given in the public hall of the governor's court. About fifty citizens were present, and five tables were spread. Jesus was at that of the most distinguished, and the disciples were scattered among the guests at the other tables. I think Jesus and the disciples also contributed something to the entertainment. Plants like little trees and pots adorned the table. Jesus taught during the meal, going from table to table and speaking to all the guests. When the tables were cleared of all but their ornamental foliage, and Grace said, all present ranged in a half circle before Jesus, who delivered an instruction and invited them to come next morning to the place of Grace, where he would discourse to them more at length. Next day toward nine in the morning, Jesus set out with the disciples for the place of instruction, where over one hundred distinguished men were gathered under the shade of the trees. In the outer circle were some women also. On the way thither, Jesus and the disciples arrived at the palace of the governor, who, in magnificent robes and attended by his officers, was just about setting out for the same place. But Jesus commanded him not to go in such array, but to make his appearance like the other men in a long mantle and penitential garb. The mantle was of dyed wool. They wore also a scapular of one piece in the back, but open on the breast, the two held in place over the shoulders by a narrow strap. The two pieces, front and back, were black with the names of the seven capital sins wrought into them in different colors. The women were veiled. When Jesus stepped up on the teacher's chair, the people bowed reverently. The governor and the most distinguished men of the city stood close to the chair. The disciples, standing in the outer circles, had each around him a group of men and women receiving instructions. Jesus first raised his eyes to heaven and prayed aloud to his Father, from whom all graces flow, that his teaching might fall upon hearts repentant and sincere. He directed the people to repeat his words after him, which they did. His discourse lasted without interruption from nine in the morning till about four in the afternoon. Once only there was a pause, during which they brought him a little refreshment, a glass of wine, and a morsel of bread. The listeners came and went, according as their business in the city demanded. Jesus taught of penance and baptism, of which he there spoke principally as of a spiritual purification and cleansing. No women were baptized before Pentecost though among the children admitted to baptism were little girls of from five to eight years old, but no grown girls. The mysterious signification connected with this I no longer remember. Jesus spoke also of Moses, of the broken tables of the law, of the golden calf, and of the thunder and lightning on Sinai. When he had made an end of speaking, and the instruction was quite finished, many of the people, including the governor, having returned to the city, a tall, prepossessing old Jew with a long beard stepped boldly up to the teacher's chair and thus addressed Jesus. Allow me now to speak with thee. Thou hast enumerated twenty-three truths, when in reality there are twenty-four. And he proceeded to name them one after another and to argue with Jesus on the point. But Jesus replied, 
desiring thy conversation, I have suffered thee here. I might have sent thee away before the whole crowd, since thou didst come hither uninvited. Thou sayest that there are twenty-four truths, and that I have taught only twenty-three. But thou hast already added three to my number, for I taught twenty only. And then Jesus counted up twenty truths, according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, although it was by the same manner of reckoning that his opponent had proved that there were twenty-four. He then discounted upon the sin and punishment of those that add something to the truth. But the old Jew would by no means acknowledge his error, and he was supported by some present, who were glad to hear Jesus contradicted. But Jesus said to him, Thou hast a beautiful garden. Bring me some of the best and soundest of its fruits. They will rot away as a sign that thou art in the wrong. Thou hast an erect, robust body. Thou shalt grow crooked if thou art wrong, that thou mayest see how the noblest gifts are ruined and deformed as soon as additions are made to the truth. But if thou canst show forth some such prodigy, we shall admit that there are twenty-four truths. Thereupon the old Jew hurried with his associates to the garden, but a short way off. And it was to be found all that was rare and costly in the shape of fruits, plants, and flowers. All kinds of choice animals and birds were there in cages, and the center was a large basin in which were kept rare fish for the delight of the beholder. The old man, with the help of his friends, quickly gathered the most magnificent fruits, yellow apples, and bunches of ripe grapes, which they put into two little baskets. The small fruits they put into a cut glass dish that looked as if made of threads of colored glass intersecting one another. Besides that, he took with him in lattice baskets of various birds and rare animals of the size of a hare or a little kitten. All this time, Jesus continued to speak of the evil of obstinacy and of the ruinous consequences attendant upon arbitrary additions to the truth. When now the old Jew and his companions placed around Jesus' chair the rare flowers and animals in the baskets and cages, intense excitement prevailed in the crowd. But when he proudly and obstinately maintained his first assertion, words of Jesus were fulfilled in all that he had brought. The fruit began to stir, and from all sides broke forth horrible maggots and worms that soon devoured it, so that, of a magnificent apple, nothing more could be seen than a tiny piece of peel on the head of a squirming maggot. The beautiful birds and other rare animals began to grow faint and exude matter from which were formed worms that turned and gnawed their flesh, now become red and raw. The sight was so disgusting that the crowd, which had pressed forward through curiosity, began to turn away with expressions of horror. And this all the more as the old Jew, turning pale and perfectly yellow, became shrunken on one side. At this miracle the people set up a frightful noise and clamor, and the old Jew, bewailing himself, acknowledged his error and implored Jesus for mercy. There was so great a tumult that the governor of the city, who had returned home, had to be called to quell the disturbance. As for the old Jew, he loudly proclaimed his fault and confessed that he had indeed tampered with the truth. In consideration of the man's vehement sorrow, and his entreaties to all present to pray for him that he might be cured, Jesus blessed the fruits and animals that had been brought to him. All were immediately restored to their first state, including the man himself, who cast himself in tears at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. He was so truly converted that he became one of the most faithful of Jesus' followers, 
and the instrument of many other conversions. In a spirit of penance, he shared with the poor a great part of the magnificent fruits of his garden. His miracle made a deep impression upon all that had now returned from the city, whether they had gone to take something to eat. And indeed, such a miracle was necessary here, for these people, as is often the case among nations of mixed origin, were obstinate in maintaining opinions that had been proved to them to be erroneous. They sprang from Samaritans who had entered into mixed marriages with heathens, and who had, in consequence, been banished from Samaria. They were fasting today not on account of the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, but account of their own expulsion from Samaria. They indeed acknowledged and lamented their having fallen into error, but at the same time they cared not to abandon it. They had given Jesus an extraordinarily gracious reception, because many signs contained in an old tradition received by them from the heathens had been fulfilled. In accordance with the same, they were now expecting some great favor from God to befall them. This promise had been made at the place afterward, named the place of grace. I know only this, that these heathens had once in great affliction prayed on that spot with hands raised to heaven, and that it had been foretold to them that when new streams should flow into the lake, and another into the bathing spring, when the city should have extended as far as the spring, then should the favor be received, and now all these signs had been fulfilled. There flowed at this time, I think, five new streams, either all into the lake, or some into it, and some into the Jordan nearby. Another sign was fulfilled, and the taking of some change in an arm of the Jordan, and a new stream of good water had begun to flow into the well at the place of grace. It was at this place that Jesus was about to baptize, and it was, very probably, to this that all the prophecies concerning the water referred. The water here, too, was bad. The city had also extended entirely on this side. The northern side lay low and black, full of exhalations arising from its marshes. Only some poor heathens, outcasts, dwelt there in little huts. But toward the southeast of the city were many new houses, gardens, and buildings, all the way to the place of grace. The place was low, and the country around level. By a change in the river banks and the sudden elevation of a mountain, an arm of the Jordan had bent its course westwardly as far as the garden, where it united with the little stream and then flowed back into its bed. This bend covered a considerable area. The waters of the Jordan flowing hither constituted one of the aforementioned signs. As Jesus on the following day was again teaching in the synagogue, in the center of which stood a magnificent chest containing the rolls of the law, the Jews entered barefoot. Ablutions were prohibited on that day, therefore after the instruction of the preceding eve, they had washed and bathed. Above the clothes of the day before, they wore in the synagogue a long black mantle with a hood and train. It was open at the sides and fastened with cords. On the right arm hung two rough black maniples, and the left arm one. They prayed and chanted in a mournful tone, enveloped themselves for a while in sacks open in front, and prostrated face downward in the galleries around the synagogue. The women practiced similar penances in their homes. The fires had been covered the day before. Not till evening did I see any meal taken, and then it was at an uncovered table in the inn where Jesus ate with his disciples alone. The others took theirs in the large hall of the court. The meal consisted entirely of cold viands brought forth from the governor's house. Jesus spoke words of instruction on the subject of eating. Many people, 
Among them the lame and crippled came in turn to the table upon which were some shallow dishes filled with ashes. The old Jew had been converted, gave many of the best of his magnificent fruits to the poor. On the next day also, the Sabbath, Jesus again taught in the synagogue, and after the instruction walked with his disciples and about ten Jews to the mountain north of the city. The country in that direction was wild and savage. The little party tarried a while under the trees in front of a house, and partook of some food and drink offered them by its inmates. Jesus gave his companions all kinds of rules for their direction, for, as he said, he would soon leave them to return but once again. Among other things, he exhorted them not to make so many motions when at prayer, a custom here carried to excess, and above all, not to be so severe towards sinners and heathens, to be more lenient to them. Thereupon he related the parable of the unjust steward, proposing it to them in the form of enigma. They wondered at it, and he asked them why the conduct of the steward should be praised. It appeared to me that Jesus symbolized the synagogue by the unjust steward, and the other debtors by the heathens in the various sects. The synagogue should reduce the debt of the sects and heathens while she is furnished with power and grace. V.V. while she undeservedly and unjustly possesses opulence in order that, when she is herself about to be ejected, she may flee to the mediation of the kindly treated debtors.